Blog Talk Radio.
everybody. This is Underground's Going Ghost, and tonight we have Dennis Eslock from the Cabin on 360 from Mechanicsville, Virginia. Hey, Dennis, you with us? I think so. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Am I, am I there? You're with us. Are you, are you there? No, I'm here. I'm not there. I'm here. <laughs> Look around. Do you see me? Of course I'm not there. So now I got you looking around here? going, what the hell do I do with this? Yeah. <laughs> I was worried. I was worried. What to be here? Oh, the entertainment value of being old and insane. <laughs> I am doing wonderful. How's everybody on that end doing? Great. Everybody's good on this end. So, uh, good deal, good deal. We got you on the show here tonight so that you can tell us a little bit about the cabin on 360, the history behind it, the war, the order for Cold Harbor. Okay. Then, um, all right, I reckon we'll start with, we'll step back in, in time a little bit. We'll go back to 1864, and we'll look at troop movements around the battles of Bethesda Church. And Bethesda Church is about 500 yards away from the current day location of the cabin on 360. The remnants of the foundation are still there. However, modern growth has invaded it. But... Bethesda Church itself was a Confederate headquarters. Now, in research, I find that the Union referred to it as the battle at the old old church because they didn't know the name of it. They referred to modern-day 360 or Mechanicsville Turnpike as the old church road. That's why you have um, roads in that area actually called old church. Um, but... About a mile away from there was a place called the Via House, or Via House, depends on who you talk to and how they pronounce it. That was a union headquarters. Pretty much as the crow flies, that put the property the cabin on 360 sits in right between those two, the union headquarters to the north and Bethesda Church just 500 yards or so to, like, the south-southwest. Basically... We were in O'Shitsville. Every time the Union wanted to move in and attack Bethesda Church, they would either skirt the property that the cabin is on or run right through that property. Every time the Confederates wanted to go attack the Union headquarters at Via House, they would do the same exact thing. So it became a dance, basically, about four days um, from May twenty. 7th, 28th to about June 3rd, June 4th, they crossed our property about eight different times um, in their little dance of war, so to speak, trying to gain control of the intersection that sits less than half a mile up from us. Now, the Confederates were told at all costs, protect this intersection. Do not lose control of it. Because it was a main thoroughfare coming into Richmond. That's That was their mm-hmm. their bloodline 
you know, for yeah, supplies and troop movements and everything else. So they did everything they could to maintain that property. Now, there was a family that had a home. I tried to do as close as I could, so I'm probably within 50 to 100 feet on a map overlay from an 1864 Confederate engineer's map and modern-day Google Maps. And I use that crossroads at Walnut Grove Road and 360 as my reference point to set the maps. So the Curry family that had a home there, um, their house got gutted by the Union moving through. So that tells us, and we've actually got a journal entry from a lieutenant colonel back at the Via House that talks about the Via or the Curry family coming up asking for reparations for the damage done. So we have validity on that information, not just a little dot on the map that shows up with a name on it, but we can actually tie them having gone to the union asking for money. Um, But on that property, the way that the battles all took place out through that whole area, they all kind of ran together. So you don't, when you look up just the battle at Bethesda Church, you don't see just that, just statistics and just deaths for that. Because it ties into the battles at Metataquin Creek, the battles at Hall's Shop, which were uh, Hall's Shop and Hall's Shop 2. Um, Potapotamoy Creek is just a couple of miles north. That battle gets tied into Bethesda Church. So everything gets kind of muddied as far as stats. Now, on our exact piece of land, do I know how many deaths we had? No. Um, I do know there was a lot through there, but from all the different articles and everything that I've read and all the information I've gathered, within about a mile and a half to pushing out to two miles from our property, I can account for 2,000 264 men killed, captured, wounded, or missing in action. That's a lot. That's That's from both sides. So now this, that number is the big number. So let's break it down to an individual company, and we can make it a little more real for you, because when you throw out 2,200 people died or went missing, That's like, wow, that's just a huge number. It doesn't have any personalization to it. So let's make it a little personal. Um, 10th Virginia was quartered at Bethesda Church. They were given the mandate to go attack the Via House, try to overrun the Union forces there, try to take control of that. So 500 members of 10th Virginia went up present-day Walnut Grove Road, Um, When you get about a quarter of a mile up the road from 360 on Walnut Grove, it takes a dip and goes through a little bottom land. uh, There's a little creek that runs through there. And so this 500 members of 10th Virginia hits that bottom land, and it's all muddy and mucky, and they get bogged down in the mud. Now, this is after two days of heavy rain. I don't know whose genius idea it was. Let's go on an offensive attack today after it's rained its ass off for two days. But proved very um, fatal. 400 members out of that 500 
died right in that little muddy bottom that I could probably stand at the back corner of our property and throw a stone to. The union was coming in at the same time to attack Bethesda Church. They were 5,000 strong. So they were, the Confederates at that point, 10th Virginia, were outnumbered 10 to 1. Um, they just literally fishbowled and massacred 10th Virginia right in that little bottom. Now, the way the topography of the land would have laid at that time, that little creek would have run across the back of our property and kind of faded out. So literally their blood would have flowed across our back property. And they just marched straight into their death. Pretty much. Now, you know, you also have to think they didn't walk in as a single file. They probably spread themselves out over a decent width. So let's take an assumption that their front line going up this road and going on this offensive attack is a quarter mile long. There's 500 members. Um, if, at, if their line was a quarter mile wide, their last man on the right or to the east was on our property. We're that close to that location. So these poor men had no chance of survival. Now, if we look at the men that were coming through there, yeah, I mean, they just, well, one of the stories that Ryan actually found uh, is a journal entry that recounts the tale of the little red-capped boy. So this is a 15-year-old young man, Confederate soldier, Went off to war with his 16-year-old brother, 16 or 17. We can't find a definitive. Um, so he goes off to war with his brother, and maybe two brothers were finding conflicting information on it. But they were on an offensive attack right in our area. Um, their color bearer was dropped. So the colors hit the ground. He ran over and grabbed them and yelled, damn them all, damn them all to hell. They've killed my brothers. They may as well kill me too. The day before this, his closest brother, the 15 or 16-year-old, was killed in battle. So this young 15-year-old boy runs over, grabs the flag, perches himself up towards the front and holds the flag for 20 minutes. They allowed this young man to hold the flag for 20 minutes, representing his company, then they trained a cannon on him. Oh, my God. The, the, journal entry is, um, the journal entry describes it vividly as the last thing that could be seen of the little red-capped boy after his body was turned into shrapnel from the cannon shot was his little red cap flipping through the air. So they hit this young boy with a cannonball turned his body into shrapnel to wound his company mates, his battle mates. And the last thing that could be seen was his cap flipping through the air. That's the brutality of what took place on or right around our land. Now, most of these men were on their way to Cold Harbor. Now, everybody 
you know, we're taught in school, or used to be anyway, I don't know if they still do, but we're taught that Gettysburg was the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. It was the deadliest battles of the Civil War. That's on a body count. There were about 162,000 men sent into war at Gettysburg. Approximately 56,000 died. That's a horrific number. Um, You know, to give you an idea that the average high school now in a large city or or even a a small university graduates about 2,000 students a year. So I want you to picture 28 graduating classes wiped out in a single day or in a three-day period. That's about the approximation of what died at Cold Heart or Gettysburg. It gave them right about a 30% death rate, just shy of 30%. Now let's look at Cold Harbor where these men that were coming through the, the battles of Bethesda Church and Totopotomoy and all of that right in our area, they were all headed to Cold Harbor. On a per capita basis, Cold Harbor does two and a half times the loss of Gettysburg. They suffered an in excess of 81% death rate. That is eight men out of every 10 fell dead on the battlefield. The Union Army approached Cold Harbor with with trepidation. They knew they were going into trouble because in 1862 it had already been tried once and it failed miserably, but they were ordered to take Cold Harbor because it was a major intersection out in that area. So one of the Union soldiers um, picked up a pocket letter from one of his battle mates, entered it into his journal, and it it tells now, a pocket letter is a letter that you would write home and you would put it in your inside coat pocket, typically. And then when your body is found, if you were killed in battle, that letter was to find its way to your home. So this boy wrote a letter home, uh, became his pocket letter, and it said, this is probably the last letter you'll ever receive from me. He's ordered us an assured death. We've been ordered to Cold Harbor. So these young boys knew going to Cold Harbor was pretty much a death sentence. So this other young man that that transcribed this pocket letter into his journal described Cold Harbor. He survived. And he states that upon entering Cold Harbor, there was a sense of dread. Once we cleared the tree line, it became a field of smoke and we dropped like a curtain. Now, the numbers here, again, conflict between National Park Service and historians, but somewhere between seven and 12,000 men in the first 90 minutes of battle lay dead or dying on the battlefield. 90 minutes between seven and 12,000 men lay dead on the battlefield or dying. Now, let's make this something that most of modern generation can understand. It was just over 3,200 people that were killed on the morning of September 11, 2001. Just over 3,000. Two and a half times to as much as four times that died in 90 minutes just at Cold Harbor Battle. That 
when you actually look at it, it's something that you can compare to is just an extreme number, and it just makes you look at things a, a little bit differently. It's no longer just uh, 7,000 men died. Now it's a number that you can actually connect to. That's two and a half times the number of people that died at the Twin Towers World Trade Center. And look what our, our entire country did as, you know, they all banded together over that. But these seven to 12,000 men that died just at Cold Harbor, and that's not, inc not including the 600 plus thousand overall that died in the entirety of the Civil War. So these men moving through our property. Let's take a hypothetical. What if that young man that wrote the letter home that said this will probably be the last letter home you'll ever receive from me, what if all the, the little skirmishes and battles were done and he was sitting back under a, a nice shade tree sipping from his canteen behind the property that's now the cabin on 360, and what if he wrote that letter from that property? Think about the energy that he imparted on that land knowing he is probably going to his death. Yeah. So that that gives us some history on the land. Now let's talk a little history on the properties themselves. Um, the cabin on 360 sits on 7.2 acres of the battlefields. There is obviously the cabin, which is truly a log cabin, built in 79 and 80. And next to it is a little brick rancher that was built in an undetermined date because tax records don't show me a build date. This land was acquired by Jones Realty and Construction Company in 78, July of 1978. Um, we're assuming building began almost immediately on the log cabin. It was to be a model home for log cabin sales in the area. Um, Ryan found a, which by the way, Ryan's family owns Jones Construction and Realty. Um, but Ryan found a open house flyer for the cabin on 360 with its first open house in 1980. So we have a, a good history of, of who's been there in that structure. Um, we have one near tragedy in the structure, and we have no deaths that we have discovered so far. The one near tragedy was a young lady that owned one of the small businesses there, um, said, and I'm doing this pretty much under anonymity for her. She didn't want this you know, all over the, the Internet and everything else. Um, but she owned a business there for a period of time and said that, um, you know, her life at that point was pretty good. Her and her fiancé's relationship was going well. Business was good. Life was good. She had no um, derogatory points at that time in her life. But about 4 a.m. one night, she felt compelled to come to the cabin. She said, I don't know why. I had no reason to go to the cabin. She lived just a couple of miles up the road. Um, but she called her best friend on the way there, told her best friend that, hey, I'm in kind of a dark place. I'm going out to the cabin to kind of get my shit together and clear my head. Hung up the phone, hung up on her best friend, and turned her phone off. So her best friend wasn't able to reach her back to check on her. Hey, what's going on? What, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
She expressed that while she was at the cabin, she sat at her office desk for an undetermined amount of time. She said, you know, I really didn't. It was weird. There was no sense of timing. There was no sense of being. I just was there. That was about it. She said, but at some point in time, she got up, walked around the corner and grabbed a butcher knife off the kitchen sink, walked into the bathroom. Um, there was a bottle of Xanax sitting on the bathroom sink. She said, you know, I, I still don't know where that bottle of Xanax came from. I didn't, I wasn't on Xanax. None of my employees were on Xanax. So she still has no clue where that bottle of Xanax came from. But she said she swallowed the bottle of Xanax, took the butcher knife and slit both wrists, dropped the butcher knife in the sink and just stood there with her arms down at an angle out to her sides and watched the blood run out. She said she doesn't remember how long she stood there, but it was long enough to, quote, unquote, make one hell of a mess I had to clean up a couple of weeks later when I came back. But she walked out to the uh, main room where her desk was, hung her arms over the arms of her office chair and just sat there and let the blood run out. She says, now, the really weird thing, I remember after a while of sitting there, I had an out-of-body experience, I guess you would call it, because I remember standing over here by the fireplace and looking over there where my chair was, and I could see my body in the chair. I could see the pool of blood on each side. And then this old man was standing beside me. Out of nowhere, this old man shows up standing beside me with an old woman beside him. We looked at each other and looked back at my body, and I looked back at him, and he said, he told her at that point that, you know you're not ready. It's not your time, and you have to go back. She says the next thing she remembered was a very brief conversation with the paramedics before she woke up two days later in the hospital. So what had happened was her best friend, since she couldn't reach her and they had parted the phone call on such weird terms, her best friend felt the need to call authorities and ask for a welfare check. So when they got there, they found her body sitting in the chair with both wrists slashed and a pool of blood on each side. She says, you know, to this day, I still don't know why I went out there. And the question that stuck with me the most was, you don't think what's here drew me here to do that, do you? Frankly, I think it very well may have. It sounds like she had so a, a, a drawing to the to the cabin on three sixty in that moment. Do what? I said it seems like she did have some kind of pull, some kind of draw to the cabin in that moment. Yeah, I see and you've been there, so you're familiar with yeah. the darker energy that's next door that I'm about to talk about. I think uh-huh. truly it flourishes on tragedy and death. So I wouldn't be the least bit surprised to know that she was actually drawn back there, that it had enough control over her mindset to draw her back there to do that. So I mentioned the little darker energy next door. We call him Dobby because we have a thermal image of him. And I have a drawing of him that was done by a young lady that, um, swear she saw him she was freaked out and had to be taken out of the building Ryan actually had to take her arm and walk her out of the building um, but we call him Dobby 
I'll be the house elf. So um, there have been numerous investigations out there where the question is asked, can you tell us your name? We get every, every kind of response back from a typical, uh, we've gotten Lisa, we've gotten Melissa, we've gotten um, you know, various other names. But usually in the basement, we get a little bit darker, asshole. So we've gotten a response back to what's your name, uh, Satan, Beelzebub. Um, and then there's traditional, fuck you. So I do think there is something a little darker down there. Um, yeah, there's definitely something dark in that basement. I've, I've felt it. Yeah, he, he's not a pleasant individual. You know, and I've done this long enough. I've got nearly 20 years of investigating. I can, plus I'm a medium and remote viewer, so I can pick up on energies. I can tell if it's a human energy or not a human energy. And I walked in that property on day one four or five years ago now with Ryan, and uh-huh. I wasn't five steps in the door, and I stopped dead in my tracks and that cold chill ran up my back, and I knew. And I just looked at Ryan, and I said, there's something in this house that's not human, and it never has been. This is fucked up. And we've proven that to be true time and time again through our investigations. So let's move a little more modern on the history of that property and the tragedy that took place in that brick rancher. When it was purchased, we don't know if they had a tenant when it was purchased by Jones, we don't know if anybody lived there at that point in time or not. I can't find exact documents. But on the morning of Friday, October 4th, 1979, the family that lived there was the Elliott family. Now, Ryan recounted a story to me when he was a child, um, seven, eight years old, that there was a young girl's body found in the woods behind there. His dad got called by the construction workers for the company to come out, and his dad helped pick this little girl's body up and put her in the ambulance. Um, Ryan didn't know how old she was or anything else, so I went on an exhaustive search, and I finally found news articles from Friday, October 4th, 1979, where 17-year-old Randy Lynn Elliott raped and murdered his 12-year-old half-sister, Melissa, Carol Elliott in that house, shot her twice in the chest with a 38 caliber, strangled her, threw her body out the back window, dragged her 75 to 100 yards into the woods, and dropped her partially closed body into a refrigerator box. Now, the question that I have to ask, the same energy that drew this young lady to the log cabin and drew her out there in the middle of the night to kill herself, could it have influenced Randy to do what he did? I mean, that's a good question. It sounds kind of uh, Amityville-ish, the story. Well, we've talked, to a few of, we've talked to a few of Melissa's classmates, including one young lady that was supposed to spend that night with Melissa. And she says that for the couple of months leading up to that incident, Randy was um, spending more and more time alone in the basement, 
kind of turned it into his little man cave. Could what's in there have played in his mind and convinced him to do something outlandish like this? You know, yeah, we, exactly. we truly don't know at this point. Now, I've asked the question, are you the dark energy that caused Randy to rape and murder his own sister? And the voice that I got back was very deep, very gruff, very menacing. Yes. So it leads me to believe it's very possible that whatever is there did influence Randy to do this. Yeah, it does now, have an effect on people. It had an effect on me the first time I went into the cabin, so I think it's possible. Yeah, there, there, yeah. I mean, I, I've had, well, put it this way: we had a team drive nine and a half hours down from New Hampshire. Seven members um, said that they had several years investigating history. So they're not new to this, um, but I gave them the history. I gave them the tour. I took about an hour and a half with them, and I left them. An hour and a half later, they called me, and they told me that we're going home. What, 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 what do you mean you're going home? Mm-hmm. We've, I, As the team leader, I have to pick um, safety over evidence and I don't feel that my team is safe. I said, well, what the hell went off the rails so bad that in an hour and a half you're ready to roll? And his statement to me was, my team is more like a family. But I had to step in and separate team members. They were at each other's throats. I thought they were going to come to blows. And then my best friend of 20 plus years turned and looked at me with a look in his face and, and just it wasn't him behind the eyes and told me point blank I don't know why I just want to smash your fucking face in he said at that point I realized it was time to leave we weren't prepared for what was there I said well that was a good good thought (laughs) yeah Yeah, wise decision to bug out so you know whatever is there is um is an asshole. I mean, there's yeah. there's no speed, no, there's no way around that. Um, they said that one of their team members was walking to the way back, which is the very back end of the um, seven acres. He was going to go plant a couple of um, trail cameras to yeah. see if they capture anything. Um, got partway back on the little access road that runs beside the house and stopped to relieve himself into the tree line and all of a sudden realized he is surrounded by hooded, cloaked figures. He said he kind of panicked, but he closed his eyes and started to pray, and when he opened his eyes, they were gone. He hauled ass back to the cabin. Uh, Needless to say, they didn't get trail cams planted in that that trip. Right. But, you know, I I kind of understand where where why he didn't finish that trip. I I kind of think if I'm standing there taking a leak and I get surrounded by hooded cloaked figures, I'm I'm bugging out too. Yeah. He I had to run out of the woods. Game over. 
Yeah, I had to run out of the woods once. Um, I, you know, I had a, I I had a soldier it. come up on me. What's that, Dennis? Uh, I, I can believe it. Yeah. You are certainly yeah. not the first one that's had to run out. Yeah, I, I had a soldier come up on me and, um, you know, right up behind me and I had, I had to get, I had to leave. I had to get out of the woods. And in the basement of the rancher, I, um, my first time in there, we were in there with, uh, some other team members and, um, I didn't, I, I had to leave the, I had to leave the brick rancher because I went straight to the basement and stood there by myself and just wanted to fight everybody that was upstairs. So, yeah, I, it's, it's a um, definitely a hot location. Yeah, it's one of those where, and most people are like, "Oh, I'm a badass. I can handle this." Um, no, I, I I really don't really don't think that's the way it works there. I think what's there is enough that it will play in your head. Um, you know, and I have permission to tell this story. Um, John Harris with RVA Paranormal has been investigating for quite a while. He investigates with his wife, Lynn, and daughter, Kristen. Very good people, very mild-mannered, very calm. Um, They're methodical in the way that they do things, which I like. So if I have a large group there, like we do a lot of charity events, Um, you know, brain cancer patients, cancer patients in general. Uh, One of my former team members was diagnosed with colon cancer. We did a a charity event for them. A young lady in in Mechanicsville just passed away a few months ago, uh, Sawyer Perkins. We'd done, I think, three events for them and hand all the money to the family to help them. Um, You know, we do a lot for animal rescues and things like that. But they were there helping us with leading groups one night. And I get called from about halfway down the side access road up to the front, Ryan yelling at me, John needs you right now. So I come running up to find John in a light drizzle coming down. He's on his hands and knees on the access road just bawling. So I took knees beside him. I'm like, John, what the hell? What happened? And he said, man, I really don't know. It started out, we were in Melissa's bedroom. I lost a piece of gear to battery drain, which, you know, we're kind of used to that. He goes, I always make sure I put brand new batteries and everything at the beginning of the night. Um, but lost a piece of gear there. Um, he had his SLS camera with him, which runs on a Microsoft Surface 4 Pro tablet. So it should have good okay. six to eight hours battery life. He said he had used it upstairs uh, had 78% battery when they went to the basement. He said, once we got to the basement, I lost another piece or two of equipment to battery drain. And then just out of nowhere, the woman that was sitting beside him leans over and goes, I don't know if this makes sense to you, but I just want to look at you and go, ha, ha, ha. He's like, I thought that was just weird as hell. But then it would get worse. I said, well, so how did you end up out here? And he says, well, right after she turned and laughed at me like that, he's like, I just thought it was bizarre, and I shrugged it off. But I fired up the SLS camera. The tablet had 78% battery life. 
and almost all of a sudden, almost instantly, it went from 78% to zero and shut down. Because I'm not going to lie, I got up and stomped across the basement like a little 12-year-old that just got denied his first kiss. And my, you know, Lynn and Kristen both were like, you know, it's no big deal. It's just battery drain. We're used to that. Don't worry about it. He's like, I've never wanted to inflict harm on my family. But at that moment, I just wanted to punch him in the face till they shut up. He's like, I knew then I had a problem. He goes, that's when I turned and, and hauled ass out the house. He goes, I virtually ran over somebody in the living room, hit the front door, and just started bawling. He goes, I don't know what it was, but I have never felt that before. He goes, I've, I've never been affected by a place like this. I'm like, okay. So we, I kept him on his knees. We did a prayer and blessing session. I grounded him. Uh, then I took him back in to try to recover his energy. Because, you know, if you if you leave a situation like that and yeah. you leave silently, they take a, they take full advantage of that. So I don't let that happen. Um, I will take you back in and make them give it back, you know, so to speak. But we've had numerous instances like that where you just kind of wonder what the hell is actually going on here. Why is it responding like it is? Why is it aggressive like it is? Um, You know, we've had people complain about being scratched down there. Um, We've got numerous, numerous EVPs down there of vulgarities thrown at different people. Um, you know, just all kinds of weird things that have happened in the in the Brick Rancher. Yeah, the Brick Rancher is um, Brick Rancher's got a lot of uh, I don't know. It's got an energy there that I don't like. I'd rather hang out in the cabin. I don't like going to the Brick Rancher. Uh, and that's I'm one of those ones that thinks I'm badass. So I'm gonna go in, but I don't want I don't want to go into the brick rancher. Not after I felt like I wanted to go upstairs and punch people in the face. And so yeah, mm-mm. I'll stick to the cabin. Yeah, and, you know, for a lot of people, that's my recommendation to them. Simply because I don't know how they're going to respond. I don't know if they'll be affected. You know, I. Frankly, I would have never expected John to be affected like that, simply because I've been with him on other locations and things don't affect him. Um, you know, I get played with from time to time in that same manner. I mean, I had something at a location that straight up pissed me off. I, for lack of better terms, I think I was jumped because I got so angry at the guests that I literally cussed the guests out. And for me to do that, that's just, I mean, you know, like I'm very calm, very mild-mannered, very calm. That night, uh-uh, I lost my shit. And I went off on everybody. Um, so, you know, it does happen to the best of us. And you, you truly have to be very careful on how you 
conduct yourself and how open you are. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my strongest recommendations is anybody that goes into a place like that, shield. Be very careful and just shield. Uh, because they will, you know, they can come at you. They can play yeah. in your psyche. And they will screw your world up. Yes, and they will absolutely go home with you. Yeah. I, so, <laughs> I, yes. I have a, I have a family that, well, it was boyfriend and girlfriend at that time. They're now married, but um, they came out to join us one night, and he was kind of him hawing around, and he's like, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that how much of this I believe in, or I'm not sure of, of, you know, all of this. So, all right. So he's kind of taking it lightly. Um, he was a little bit antagonistic in the basement, provoking a little bit. Um, called me the next day, and he goes, uh, so is it possible for things to, like, follow you home? I said, yeah, I, I do believe it is. Why? And he goes, man, we had a really weird thing going last night. He's like, so the stereo in our van doesn't work. It hasn't worked for like a year. He's like, I've beat the hell out of the dash and everything else trying to get it to work. I just can't get that stereo to come on. He's like, but we made it, oh, I don't know, a mile down the road. All of a sudden the stereo came on blaring like death metal at full volume. Neither one of us listened to that. He's like, we both turned and looked at each other. He said, I looked in the back seat jammed on the brakes and hit the power slide door to open up the side door and said, you got to get the fuck out. You can't go home with us. you got to go back. He's like, at that instant, the right. stereo shut off and it never came back on. He's like, you don't think something hitched a ride with us, do you? And I was like, yeah, it kind of sounds that way to me. Yeah, absolutely. So, but, you know, it, it, it's a little ironic and weird things like that. Is it just timing? Did he hit a pothole just right? Yeah, possibly. Uh, did a wire just vibrate just perfect to make that stereo in the in the van come on that hasn't come on in a year? Yeah, that's possible. Um, you know, is it also possible that whatever was in the basement decided to hitch a ride with him? Oh yeah. So I don't know. And that's what makes it paranormal. You know, it's, just, it's unexplainable. Exactly. Anything that is out of the normal falls under paranormal. And we've had a lot of paranormal instances happen at that property. So we do rent it out for teams to come in and investigate. Um, mm-hmm. You can find us Find the Facebook page, just the cabin on 360. Uh, shoot me a friend request or a message, just Dennis Estlock. I'm easy to find. Or find Ryan C. Jones. I'm sure most of the listeners here on the Vibe Radio Network are familiar with him. Um, yeah. yeah, shoot us a message. We'll work out some dates. Um, you know, our rates are, are pretty damn reasonable given the fact that you get seven acres and two structures you, know, you can split up group pretty well and, and go to you know numerous different areas and investigate to your heart's content. 
Yeah, I mean, the cat is... So what... Go ahead, Dennis. Well, I was going to ask, what do you think is the craziest thing you've encountered while you've been there? Oh, well, my, well, of, of course, my favorite spot in the cabin is the Pink Pearl. Um, it's for, you know, going to throw it out there. Um, that's, if anybody knows who's been to the cabin, it's the upstairs part of the cabin. Um, but, yeah, that's my favorite spot. But the, the worst thing that's ever happened to me was when I was jumped in the basement, my very first time in the basement when I, I, I walked into the rancher and walked right into Randy's room first. Stood there. Was just immediately started to feel angry and pissed off. I wanted to uh, fight the lady that was hitting the walls and asking me questions and trying, like it was she was taunting the energy in, in the in the room and, and it just it didn't like it, and so I went straight to the basement. Never been in there, but went straight to the basement and stood there. And um, then uh, another team member came, and got me, and took me out of the house. And then uh, I had to um, I had to have somebody ground me and do a blessing on me because I just I was I hated everybody in, in there. I didn't like, and that was like the worst experience that I've had in the paranormal world ever that moment how close do you think you came to just wanting to whip somebody's ass oh, I was close I knew it wasn't my feeling so I didn't act on them and I was confused but I wanted to go up there and and I, and I like this girl we and her friends now you know um, but I wanted to I wanted to hit her. I wanted to just grab her and tell her to get the hell out of the the, uh, brick rancher and that she didn't know what the hell she was talking about. And that is my point exactly. It'll take best of friends and family members and everything else and pit you against each other. So the next thing you realize, you're ready to tear someone's face off. And people Mm -hmm. don't even realize it's happening. Whereas you made the comment, I knew it wasn't my feelings. How many people get in that same situation, but they don't realize it's not their feelings or their emotions, and all of a sudden all hell breaks loose? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely an experience, but definitely one that you don't. The Brick Ranger, you don't want to be in the Brick Ranger by yourself. You definitely want to go with a group. That's a that's a good idea. Whatever's there is enough that, like I said, it'll play in your head, and next thing you know, you're just you're ready to whip ass on everybody. All right. And, you know, it's it's one of those strange places. You know that. I've talked to a, a thousand people, and they're like, oh, I, I've been here, I've been there, I've done this, I've done that. And I, you know, I've been in prisons and hospitals and this and that and the other. Well, what they're, what they're looking at is the living world's view 
of what life or people would be like in that location. They're not looking from the aspect of what can be there. They're looking at it from, well, we know there were mental patients here. We know there were inmates here. We know there were you know, murderers here. But they're not looking at, this was just basic, you know, John and Jane Doe's house was something a little dark that came in and just tore their family apart. So they they don't look at it because it is a, a little unassuming location. It doesn't have that that look of dread and everything like like you know Moundsville, West Virginia State Penitentiary, or or the history and the the uh, darkness that you know Pennhurst Asylum has. It, it, it right. doesn't have the lore of um, St. Albans Sanatorium. So they go in there kind of. La, da, 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 da. Uh-huh. The next thing they know, it doesn't look their throats. No, it just looks like this nice little place that you would cruise by on the on the a typical Sunday drive. And then you go. Yeah, when I first got to Ranger, I didn't expect it to be where it is. And um, but yeah, you if you were just to drive by and not know what it was, you wouldn't think that it was had this gruesome history behind it. Yeah, and most people don't. And next thing you know, it's it's raised holy havoc. And, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I kind of feel bad for the way that some people have reacted to the property because of what's there. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, if you've got any time investigating, you should be smart enough to know this is not something I should take lightly, no matter where I'm at. It can go bad in a heartbeat. So I've got a couple of different investigations coming up. Um, next weekend, I get to go out to Withville, Virginia, which is out in the southwest, uh, beyond Radford and whatnot, to a place called the um, 1870 Octagon Mansion. Um, Civil War activity all around it. Uh, the Union actually marched into town and wanted to um, take over the town, burn down a bunch of the buildings and everything because they were supplying the Union or the uh, Confederate efforts. Well, most of the Confederate soldiers were out um, mm-hmm. engaged. So a, a couple of them ran back into town. They outfitted the, the town folk, mostly women and children, with arms and told them, you know, any Union soldier comes in, kill them. And they did. They wiped out a ton of the Union soldiers. Um, you know, so it, it has a very gruesome history. Um, but John, the gentleman that owns the property, has been collecting Civil War artifacts from the time he was a young child, and he's, uh, he's gotten me by a few years. I, won't, I don't know his age, so I don't even want to guess. But there's four stories to the house, and it is loaded with Civil War artifacts. 
So the question is, what has brought energy back? There's probably a thousand or more bullets in there. There's uniforms. There's cannonball and grape shot. And, I mean, you name it, it's in this house. Uh, so we get to go investigate there, and it's it's definitely an active place. Um, look up Lost Souls Paranormal. Um, Larry and Sarah run it, and they're wonderful people. Um, so they've asked that myself and if I could provide a couple of members of my team to come out and help them with groups, uh, they would be greatly appreciative. So I told them I would. So I've got myself, Gene, and Crystal are traveling out there to, to lead groups and help with the investigations that night. And that's on the 19th. Uh, actually, they're doing Friday night and Saturday night. But look it up. Um, also, and we just announced this one, June 19th, we get to do the first ever overnight actually sleep on the battlefields uh, in the cabin sites that they have there at Pamplin Historical Park just south of Petersburg here in Virginia. Um, yes, that one's going to be fun. So Pam- I'm looking forward to that. That one's going to be amazing. It's 424 acres of battlefield. Um, there's two homes that we get to investigate. Um both of which had the battles waging right in their yards. Um, the Tudor Hall or the Boiseau family home was taken over by the Union soldiers for um, several months. Um, they've got a huge museum there that I think is 15,000 square feet. Maybe it was either 15 or 50,000 square feet. I don't remember, but it's loaded with artifacts. Um, and some of the coolest shit I have seen has happened there. I watched a company of probably 20 men walk by this path at the end ahead of us, and I had three, two investigators and Chief Park Ranger with me when we saw this, and all of us saw it. Um, so that one's going to be really cool. Tickets for that are only 75 and we're going to provide dinner and we're going to have like donuts and coffee and et cetera for breakfast cool. in the morning. Awesome. So, That's awesome. I got to let you go, man. We got 46 seconds left. And, um, but everybody needs to check out cross paranormal, lost old paranormal. Make sure that you, uh, check out the events that crop holding at, uh, Pamplin park. And, um, the one, what's the one that was by lost old? Um, it's at the 1870 Octagon Mansion. So check out that one, the Octagon Mansion, and check out Crops. So thank you, Dennis, for joining us tonight on uh, Underground Go and Go. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I had a good time. I hope you did, too. I did, man. I always have fun talking to you. Uh, you can quit kissing my ass now. Flattery will get you nowhere. (laughs) Thank you, darling. I had a great time. Y'all have a blessed night. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.